Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. We'll continue to read from Sri Jiva Goswami's Krishna Sandarbha. We're on the 29th Anacheta, <coughs> wherein Jiva Goswami is introducing the topic of the Parivas Sutra. It's an extensive Anacheta. And we've... Uh, First, we were first introduced to the uh, idea that this is not just just a eulogy because Krishna is such a nice little beautiful avatar, mm-hmm. as some would consider him, equal to all the other avatars, all the avatars coming through the agency of uh, the Purusha avatar, referred to differently. Sometimes they say that the various incarnations are coming through Garbo Dakshai Vishnu, which would be the more common understanding because the avatars in one universe would come through that manifestation of Vishnu, who's the predominating Purusha within that universe. Uh, but you also find statements in scripture that uh, state that the avatars are coming from Karna Dakshai Vishnu. And uh, one of the topics that this particular section, or Anucheta, every section of Jiva Goswami presentation of the Sandarbhas, is referred to as an Anucheta, but it just means a section, a section of the book, or a section of the presentation dealing with one specific aspect of Tattva, the various truths that he's trying to convey to us. So we begin there uh, with the understanding that it was not just a eulogy for so many reasons. And then Jiva began to explain to us what exactly is the significance of Aparivas Sutra itself. And we also took a detour into an analogy of the significance of Parivas. Uh, by looking at the idea that the jiva was originally with Krishna and Galoka and fell, the fall vod. So uh, my spiritual master, Srila Prabhupada, in introducing Krishna consciousness, said that in so many ways, in letters, and conversations. But when it came to the actual place in the Bhagavatam where the subject matter is dealt with, definitively, where I believe it's uh, Yudhisthira or Pariksit, I can't remember who was, huh? Yudhisthira, because the narration was between Yudhisthira and Narada Muni. Right, so Narada is relaying the pastime. So one thing about the Bhagavatam, we have nestled, nestled discourse, discourse within discourse within discourse, because this one heard it from that one who heard it from that one who said that this one said it. So all of a sudden we come back out and we say, okay, this is a conversation between Sukade Goswami and Maharaj Pariksit. No, actually, that's nestled within the main conversation of the Bhagavatam, which is between Sutta Goswami and the sages of Namasharanya, uh, headed by uh, Sunaka. So they're actually the 
they're the outer shell of the nestling of all the different narrations that you hear within the Bhagavatam is Sutta Goswami. So Parikshit saying, I just, it's not possible. How could anybody leave Vaikuntha? I'm aspiring to this for, for that's my main aspiration, and you, I'm going to get there and have to leave for some reason. Jaya and Vijaya had to leave. Narada said, no, no, let me explain exactly what happened. So in that part of the Bhagavatam where it's discussed, Prabhupada made a statement, a very definitive statement at the end of one of his commentaries, one of his purports. He said, it is a fact no one falls for Vaikuntha. So it is a fact it's equal to the two in Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. It's, it's, it's that definitive. It is a fact. A statement let, made like that in the part of the Bhagavatam which deals with the subject of falling from Vaikuntha is a defining statement, in my opinion. <laughs> Uh, which could be compared to a parivas on the nature of falling for Vaikuntha. And it conforms with all other statements when it comes to the understanding of the nature of the transcendental realm. Just as the Bhagavatam statements here are in the very chapter dealing with the avatars. So it's a, like a preview of of all the different narrations that are, the, that are coming to Bhagavatam in the third chapter of the very first canto, Sutta Goswami is saying, these are the various avatars, and I'll highlight some of these through the narrations as we proceed by quoting what I heard, what I experienced when Maharaj Parikshit inquired from Sukadeva Goswami. So context, the place. The place is the third canto. The third canto is specifically talking about all the various avatars. And inside all that narration, we have this one statement, Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam. And it hasn't been made before. And it's not really made again. This, is, this in and of itself is strong enough uh, to convey. And it's... Well, it's not universally accepted by all Vaishnavas, this statement, Krishna's do Bhagavan Swayam. As Gaudias, we put a lot more emphasis on it than other Vaishnav Sampradayas. So we'll continue with a couple more points from the commentary, and then we'll proceed to the next subsection. As I said, this anachet is extremely extensive, dealing with the, the nature of a Parivas Sutra, and the fact that Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam is a Parivasutra, it shines light on all other statements in the Bhagavatam. And since in the Tattva Sandarva, Jiva Goswami has already established that of all the scriptures, Bhagavatam is the very topmost. So this statement not only sheds light on all other statements regarding the supreme absolute truth in the Srimad Bhagavatam, but all other statements in all the Bhakti Shastras and all those Shastras dealing with transcendental knowledge. So a rule such as this, as this Parivas Sutra, it only needs to be stated once. It doesn't need to be repeated. 
it is established as the guiding principle for interpreting the rest of the text and for setting any apparent conflicts between opposing statements. Settling, I'm sorry. Settling any apparent conflicts. Wouldn't it be nice if it was that easy? Uh, we sometimes engage in dialogue with other Vaishnavas. And there's so many ideas out there. And what we see is that oftentimes misconceptions are put forth because of a lack of a comprehensive understanding of the weight of one praman or evidence as opposed to another. Where do we put the most weight? Now, the neophyte is most inclined to put the majority of the weight of any statement with the words he hears from the guru, his guru. What his guru specifically says carries more weight than everything else in the beginning. And that's, that's never diminished. I'm not meaning that that becomes less significant in time. But in time, finer discrimination is employed. And of course, in time, the statements one hears from the spiritual master are also modified according to the qualification of the student. So the two go in tandem. But what we find is for those that are new to the philosophy of Krishna conscious, we call neophytes uh, in the philosophy, they're going to put the most weight in what they've heard from their guru because that's where the majority of their faith lies. Their faith is, faith is cultured over time and the guru instills that faith, faith in the beginning stages of spiritual practice through his, the exemplar of his character and his conduct and what he knows, his knowledge of spiritual matters. And then all of a sudden you look to when he's speaking spiritual matters and you notice, oh, he's referring during his discourse to a book. It's not just, it's, he has a ton of knowledge, but he's also, where's he getting the knowledge? He, he, he's, ref, he's referring to scripture and he's come to conclusions based on his study of scripture and what he's heard from his guru and then as as the student then we start to say well maybe I could read this books and he's saying yes read the books do that too and if you have any doubts about what you read or what I say bring those doubts forward we're not here to teach you what to think we're here to teach you how to think, how to use your intelligence, how to inquire intelligently. As the students going forward also, then, as this discrimination has developed more and more, then the all three of the trilogy of, we're talking about Praman, evidentiary weight, because what we notice is in discourse online, we don't know everybody that's there. We just see a, a spiritual name and say, ah, oh, devotee, great, let me talk with him. 
or let me see what he has to say. And then we hear the discourse and we say, while that in the context of what's being discussed here doesn't quite fit. And more often than not, then we see, well, he's putting the majority of his faith is in the words of his guru. Whereas a, another devotee, you can recognize, well, he supports what he heard from his guru. I heard it from my guru, and I also read it here, and here, and here, and in the commentary of this and that, sadhu, or purvacharya. So all of a sudden, we see that those arguments that are that that really touch us, that really nourish us, are arguments that come from all three of the main sources of Praman, Guru, Sadhu, and Shastra. So evidentiary weight with the Paribas Sutra is very interesting in that it is in it is in and of itself powerful enough to not require repetition throughout the text. It's when everything when any and everything else that we read in the text it sheds light on and we'll find as we move forward in this 29th anacheda that jiva goswami is going to we're really going to get a lesson on how do we make it work how does an acharya like a jiva goswami a great logician arrive at the conclusion of the Parivash Sutra when he reads verses that to seem to say in the Bhagavat Purana itself that Krishna is just an avatar or, or or even less. How does he how how does he how does he make it work? How does he use that light of the Parivash Sutra to interpret those verses and give commentary on those verses that shed light, that's, that is a commentary and an explanation that is illuminated by the Parivas Sutra. A Parivas is comparable to an emperor whose authority is final. Hence, this statement cannot be understood as a guna nuvad, a type of arthurvad. A eulogy. In the commentary, he also mentions that Sri Jiva also calls this verse a pratijna, a formal declaratory statement. And then he goes on in the commentary to explain what is a pratijna. And I'm going to read one paragraph that will hopefully shed a little bit more light on. the idea that Jiva Goswami presented um, just so we we really grasp what was being said there in regards to uh, Vayu. Sri Jiva Goswami gives an example of a Pratijna from Vedanta in Brihad Aranyaka Upanishad. It is said, Vayu, quantum force, he has that in parentheses, and Antariksha, that's the other term, the space between celestial bodies are imperishable. So here we have an Upanishadic statement 
that's saying that Vayu, and uh, this is also looked at as, as prana, um, quantum force, like the, the, the energy that's sitting there in uh, an equilibrated state before manif the manifestation begins. Referred to differently, generally it's referred to as uh, pradana when uh, prana or pradhan uh, when it's before it's been glanced upon. Once Vishnu glances upon it, then we the nomenclature tends to shift over from most of what the acharyas say. They refer to it then as mahatattva. And then we start getting into the breakdown of Mahatattva and the evolution of Mahatattva is explained uh, by Sankhya philosophy and in different ways in the scripture. So we're talking about that, that equilibrated, uneffective potentiality for a manifestation of energy separate from the Lord. Well, of course, nothing's separate from the Lord. Everything's the Lord. But generally speaking, we say internal, external, and marginal. So we look at three broad categories of energy. The external before it starts, and it, it sits there somewhere, sits somewhere. Well, it sits in existence, and that existence is Brahman, because Brahman is what? It's everything. Indifferentiated, but it's also, yeah, the greatest, the greatness, the vastness. So therefore, in consideration of these two items, the potentiality of the potentiality of something to make to make something out of nothing and the space wherein that making happens there's an Upanishadic statement that says those two things Vayu and Antariksha Antariksha meaning that space are imperishable they're imperishable if this verse were so in an unconditional sense, then Vayu and Antariksha, being non-originated, would exist distinct from Brahman, and hence beyond the purview of knowable objects. So that's really what that statement could be interpreted in that way. This, however, would contradict the proposition by knowing the Atma, all this becomes known and all this is that very Atma. Those are two more Upanishadic statements. The universal proposition, Pratijna, that everything becomes known by knowing the Atma leads to the conclusion that the Atma is both the material and efficient cause behind everything. 
if you know Atma, or you could say Brahman, you know it all. They're all knowledgeable if you know that. Okay. An effect is known accurately only through knowledge of its cause. Therefore, it is necessary to interpret the imperishability of value in conformity with this proposition. This interpretation is also supported by statements from other Upanishads, such as, my dear boy, prior to all this, there was only this Sat, Brahman, which is one alone without a second. In the beginning of the second chapter of Brihad Aranyaka Upanishad, the Brahmana Gargya approached King Antasatru and promised to teach him the truth regarding Brahman. Well, he couldn't teach him because the king knew better than the Brahmana that came to teach him. So the Brahmana became the student. The narration goes on. So now we'll come to the to the explanation and then we'll just make sure we fully grasp what what's going on. We have two conflicting statements. We have a statement that these two, an aponic shot statement that these two, the potentiality for materiality and the space wherein that takes place, we can't trace them out. They have no source. It's basically what the statement said. But we have another st other statements in the Upanishads that says everything comes from the Atma, the self. And, of course, that would mean the super-self in this context, super-self being Brahman. Well, that, that's conflict. You have two things that the Upanishads say are ever-existing and have no source, and then you have another other statements in the Upanishads that... Brahman is the source of everything. Everything comes forth from Brahman. So these are this is the two sides of the presentation. So since the concept, context concerns the knowledge of Brahman, also referred to as Atma, the two statements, by knowing the Atma, everything is known, and all this manifest world is the Atma, are in consonance with the proposition and hence will override any assertions to the contrary. That's why Jeeva's used these. This is these in his Anucheda as an example. These statements do not stand in the light of the Upanishadic statements, the, the, the Parivasas of understanding the nature of the absolute truth, in this case referring to the absolute truth as Brahman, that, that it encompasses everything and that from which everything comes. So these other statements override. They're more powerful than that one statement that these two things are ever-existing. They're not ever-existing. They're ever-existing only in the context that they are coming forth from Brahman again and again. So therefore, 
Consequently, any statement that value is imperishable needs to be interpreted in light of the above proposition. All this manifest world is the Atma. This indicates that value is imperishable for one life cycle of Brahma, not unconditionally. We have to interpret that way. Because everything in everything comes into existence. Other scriptural affirmations can also be found to support the proposition such as Tattatariya Upanishad from that Atma Brahman springs Akash space as the cosmic quantum field and from Akash appeared Vayu quantum force. So the wind and the wind and space they came from some place. They came from Brahman. Now that's another Upanishadic statement that's direct to the point. Here again, Jiva Goswami's enlightening us as to the nature of statements and not all scriptural statements carry the same weight. And simple Parivas statements are so powerful, so profound, that all other statements have to be seen in the light of these Parivas, a Parivas statement. The power of a Pratijna to override other statements is also discerned in Vedanta Sutra. And then some explanation is given there. In this regard, I'm going to take a small detour. This is from the commentary of Srila Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur on the 10th canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam, 8th chapter. And we're talking here, the 8th chapter is talking about Krishna's been accused of eating dirt and he's opened his mouth and within that mouth Mother Yusoda's seen the entire universe. She's, she's a little bewildered. Statements of Garga Acharya come to her. But it's nothing... <laughs> It's not like a big deal to her. I mean, imagine to look into the mouth of your child and see within that mouth everything, including you with your child looking into his mouth, seeing every. I mean, to me, it would be pretty profound. But Vishwanath says something interesting in regards to this. In one state, in one of the slokas, forty-fifth one of the eighth chapter, the glories of the supreme personality of Godhead are studied through the three Vedas, the Upanishads, the literature of Sankhya Yoga, and other Vaishnav literature. So the the glories of the supreme are studied. Everybody's is really trying to understand God. So the nature of the supreme is being studied perpetually through the Upanishads, through the Vedas, 
through the literatures of Sankhya Yoga and all the other Vaishnava literatures. Yet, Mother Yasoda considered the Supreme Person her ordinary child. She didn't really get it. It didn't affect her. It didn't influence her in any way as far as her understanding of Krishna. It was like, I don't see any dirt, all right, Krishna wins. Balaram was just being a rascal. Jiva says in his commentary here the following. One should take this verse as a parivas sutra of Krishna Leela. As a lamp shines in one place in a dark room and lights up the whole room, so that statement in the scriptures which can reveal the meaning of all scriptures or regulate the meaning of the scriptures is called a Paribhash Sutra. This verse stands as a regulator for all of the pastimes related to Aishvarya, displays of power and opulence shown during Krishna's Kumar and Kishore, childhood and youthful ages in Mathura, Kurukshetra and elsewhere. A Paribhash Sutra. What's it telling us? The relationships that Krishna's associates have with him in these leelas is not influenced at all by Ashwarya. Their bhava, it's so strong that doesn't matter what Krishna does. He can hold up a mountain. He can kill demons. He can display the universal form. He can show you where you're going to be in your next life when you're at the riverbank. He can do so many things. But the Vrajabhasis relationship with Krishna is not influenced whatsoever by all of those displays of majesty. And this statement, this one verse, Vishwanath points out, he says, this is our Parivas Sutra for understanding Krishna's Kumar and Kishore ages. The interesting thing about the statement is at the very end he says, in Mathura, Kurukshetra, and elsewhere, the residents of Raj, whether they're in Mathura or Kurukshetra or elsewhere, whereas those other associates of the Lord in Dwarka, Hastinapur, the Pandavas, the Asfarya they sometimes are affected by, because we saw that specifically in relationship to Arjuna on the battlefield. I was sitting on your bed. You and I were eating together. I was treating you like a friend. I, now I see the universal form of them. Excuse me, I, didn't, I never knew. <laughs> what you were like. So I think this last sentence should be in the seen in the light of Vishwanath speaking specifically to those residents of Raj, the Rigatmikas, who are so absorbed. There's no tinge, no tinge of Ashwarya in their relationship with Krishna. Anyway, I thought you'd enjoy that detour. Reconciliation of Contradictory Statements
what we have in this section, this subsection of the 29th Anucheta, which is a section, we have nine examples. Jeeva's pulled from the Bhagavatam, nine examples to give us a understanding of how different statements in the Bhagavatam which seem to say something that contradicts the Parivasutra, Krishna Stu Bhagavan Swayam, actually don't. Reconciliation of contradictory statements. It is now, it will now be demonstrated how apparently conflicting statements from Srimad Bhagavatam are to be interpreted according to this Parivas. So this is how you do it. <laughs> this is how the Gaudias do it. Jiva Goswami is our Tattva Acharya. He's, he's showing us this is this is how we look at this at, at, at the at the Srimad Bhagavatam using this light reflecting everything everything being reflected in the light of the Parivas Sutra. One in the statement quote he, Krishna, appeared there in the Yadu dynasty as an Amsa. The word Amsena means along with his Amsa, Sri Baladev. So if we were to take a literal meaning of the verse, he appeared there as an Amsa. The word Amsena means along with his Amsa, Sri Baladev. So in the verse we have the word Amsena. So he appeared as an, as an Amsa. So some commentary. Next, Sri Jiva Goswami refers to various statements that seem to contradict the Parivas of Krishna being Swayam Bhagavan. These statements are found both in the Bhagavat as well as in other Puranas. But Jiva begins by interpreting ver verses from the Bhagavat in the light of the Parivas principle that Krishna is Swayam Bhagavan. In the beginning of the 10th canto, now we come to this particular statement, in the beginning of the 10th canto, King Parichit asked Sukadev, please describe to us the exploits of Lord Vishnu, who appeared there in the Yadu dynasty with his Amsa. Srimad Bhagavatam 10.1.2 Here the word Amsena, by or with his part, that's what it means uh, as far as translation, means with his Amsa, referring to Balaram. The third or instrumental case is Amsena, is Amsena and is used in the sense of along with. If the meaning were taken as Sri Vishnu, who appeared by his part, then it would militate against the statement made earlier. But there, Vasudeva and Devakis, there, eighth son was indeed Bhagavan Hari Vishnu himself. Certainly such an interpretation would contradict the Parivasutra. Krishna, however, is Swayam Bhagavan.
So if we take the verse and take a literal meaning, then we could, one could say, well, Amsena means that Krishna is an Amsa. No. It means that he came along with an Amsa, Balaram, who is his Amsa, his expansion. In the verse, we don't find any reference at all to Balaram. We just find that statement. We find a direct statement where in the ninth canto, but there, Vasudeva and Devaki's eighth son was indeed Bhagavan Hari Vishnu himself. So it would seem to contradict also the statement from the tenth canto that's being used here to open up the uh, dialogue regarding this statement. He, Krishna, appeared there in the Yadu dynasty as an Amsa. The word Amsena means along with his Amsa, Sri Baladev. I mean, the direct statement does say he appeared as an Amsa, but what it means is he appeared with his Amsa. And that's that's how Jiva Goswami is, is translating it in order that it doesn't contradict the Parivasa Sutra. As we said when we began specifically this discussion, this part of our study, we lack a lot of what's would be requisite knowledge to enter into the a full apprehension of everything that Jiva's conveying. We don't we're not coming from a background of his culture. We're not coming with the level of scriptural expertise that his students would have had specifically in the Sanskrit language. They didn't have they didn't have translations of the Bhagavatam that they referred to. In order to read the Bhagavatam, they were Sanskrit scholars. The Bhagavatam is presented in Sanskrit. And so anything that the Goswamis were presenting was up to the point of Krishnadas Kaviraj Goswami or any other smaller presentations that might have been presented in a, in a more local language. Everything was Sanskrit. So we're coming in at a, at a disadvantage. Jiva Goswami is explaining to us here, let's look at this Sanskrit verse. So in the Sanskrit verse, you could take, you could make an interpretation, but actually the verse is talking and saying that Krishna is coming as an Amsa. But it doesn't mean that because of the Sutra. And additionally, in the context of, of the verse, it could be translated differently. And we see that repeatedly, especially as we begin to study the other commentaries on the Bhagavatam or the Bhagavad Gita, as opposed to the commentary that we initially began studying presented by A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami. I can show you verses in the Bhagavatam that are translated and it would give you, you walk away with an entirely different meaning because of the author presenting the verse 
in Sanskrit. Again, Vishwanath's unique in that he gave a Sanskrit presentation of the verse that he wanted his students to understand. So that's unique. He just didn't take the Sanskrit and translate it. He, tra he translated the, the verse himself the way you should read it in Sanskrit. Not knowing Sanskrit, I don't know, but I do know that that was pointed out to uh, Swami Tripurari by Banu Swami, that no, these are not just my English translations. Otherwise, what would have been the use? I could have just taken Prabhupada's translations and then just added Vishwanath's commentaries. Well, those commentaries do not fit with Prabhupada's translations. Prabhupada's commentaries fit with his English translations. But Vishwanath, we need to know how he interpreted the verse. And the interpretation from one Acharya to another may be in, entirely different, and they're both reading the same script, Sanskrit verse. Well, how many ways could you interpret a verse? What about that Atmarama verse? Atmarama's Chamunayo, how many translations were there? Lord Chaitanya gave a quick 60-some translations. Mm -hmm. And then he was asked about those. Oh, I heard you gave 64 explanations of the verse. Yeah, I don't know exactly what I said. I can give you some more. And he gave him another, you know, then we hear, have another presentation. So, again, sometimes when we hear these things, they're, they can be confusing to us, not having the background and not being... You know, we're reading an English translation of Jiva Goswami's Sandarbhas. And I often, in studying, I will, I will read this presented by Sachin Narayan Das, and I'll also check to see if there's any uh, commentary by Jiva separate by looking at Banu Swami's. They're kind of along the same lines, but they're unique in and of themselves. But we're talking, they're both translating the same Sanskrit. Yeah, it seems like if we're going to like present it to the outside world, that we'd have to have more evidence than like our Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam colored glasses. Because if they don't... That's what Jeeva is showing us now. As we go through this 29th Anucheta, we're going to see, no, there's all way, all these different ways. It's not just one thing. It's not just one thing. You're making a good point, but it isn't just that. Mm -hmm. It's not that we just interpret it our way. No, we interpret it our way, but we can, we can justify our way of interpreting it. So it's more than just interpreting our way. It's the term of justifying it and showing it in light in the light of so many other evidences and and sanskrit usage and grammar and context and you know so jiva's he's giving us a lot of different ways to look at it and to support so we'll go through these nine and then he's going to go through a, an extensive discourse on the mahakala Puru pastime when Krishna and Arjuna went to see Mahavishnu. 
and all the statements there that certainly seem to see, th- make us think that they're Nara and Narayan and they're, they're Vishnu's parts because he says it right right from his mouth, you are my amsas, my kalas. Jiva's going to unpack that one for us and, to, to us and show us. No, that's not really what... He may have said that, but you can't accept it as an authoritative statement because of this, 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 and this. And he'll show us so many ways that he they can't be an expansion. And he cannot even... A preview here, and then we'll stop for the evening... If Swayam Bhagavan was Mahavishnu, why would he have to do the whole trick to get Krishna to come and see him? It shows that Krishna is more powerful, that Krishna did not have to display his self to Karnadakshai Vishnu, Mahavishnu, he didn't have to he didn't in fact he couldn't see the leela he couldn't see krishna and arjuna until krishna agreed to be seen so we'll go into all that i'll stop for this evening any questions comments i just have a quick thing it's kind of like what we we're talking about sometimes people will use Prabhupada's said as a part of our sutra right without those other evidences to back it up. Or context, so, so many con- things. So that they're just using those Prabhupada said colored glasses mm-hmm. you know, to make it all work. Well, they use the Prabhupada say to support their... Yeah. Jeeva's trying to teach us how to use the Bhagavatam says... <laughs> statements in a way that we see them properly through the lens of the Adarya of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the merciful dispensation of you're not going to enter into Rag Bhakti unless you look at the Bhagavatam through these lenses. And they're not colored. They're perfectly clear. There is no color there. And I'll show you why there's no color. I'll show you this way, that way, every way. There is no color whatsoever. This is what the Bhagavatam means. You can't look at it any other way. That's Jiva Goswami. That's what we're. That's why these uh, readings are so important. Thank you so much for your association.